On Tuesday, June 13th, Common Sense Institute hosted its quarterly Eggs in the Economy event. This edition featured an in-depth conversation from the State House to the halls of local government. It featured a presentation from Dr. Stephen Byers and a panel consisting of Mayor of Lakewood Adam Paul, Mayor of Centennial Stephanie Pico, and 2023 Public Safety Fellow, former Denver Police Chief Paul Pazin. The conversation was moderated by CSI Executive Director Kelly Caulfield. And now, please enjoy this edition of Eggs and the Economy. Welcome, everybody, to our June edition of CSI's Eggs in the Economy. We are thrilled by the turnout today. This is wonderful. And I think it must mean that Coloradans are hungry for more common sense. Or maybe it's after the big Game 5 win last night. You want to learn more? Maybe you want to learn more about the impact of sports, tourism, and recreation, the Colorado's economy. We did a great report just a few weeks ago showing $60 billion um, in contributions to Colorado's GDP. Go Nuggets. If I don't know you, I'm Kelly Caulfield. I'm the executive director of Common Sense Institute, and we are so excited to have you here today. For those who haven't been to our program before, this is a quarterly event where we're bringing together the top state and local policymakers, as well as our amazing CSI fellows, to come together and talk about issues most critical to Colorado. The goal is to bring together people of different perspectives, to talk, to listen, to occasionally disagree, and of course, to eat delicious breakfast together. I think we're hungry for common sense solutions these days. At Common Sense, we believe strongly in the need for civility, an open dialogue, and a conversation driven by the facts. Research is our currency, and we have produced so far a record number of over 41 reports so far this year with 450 media mentions. Our work is getting out there, and we appreciate it. We believe that sound fiscal and economic research is essential to uphold Colorado's economic vitality, future, and individual opportunity. Never before has the role of CSI been more important. In recent polling, just done last week by The Economist, only 26% of the country believes that we're on the right track. Just 19% of Americans polled by a recent Pew Research survey rate economic conditions as excellent or even good. Barely 50% expect the economic conditions to get, they expect it to get worse over the next year. And just 17% are the eternal optimists and believe that it will improve. But I'm not here to disappoint. I'm here to inspire and we're here to educate. Returning to the principles of free enterprise can be the guiding principles that we embrace as we weather this storm. And it starts with the knowledge of the facts. I also believe we weather the storm better when we're together. Republicans, Democrats, those who are unaffiliated. So for those legislators, the state level, locally elected officials, could you please stand so we could recognize your service to our great state?
Before we get today's program, I'd also like to take a moment to thank the amazing board of directors for Common Sense Institute. Without your fearless leadership, we wouldn't be here today in this amazingly filled room after a historic win last night. Please stand up um, if you're on CSI's board so we can recognize you. I also want to recognize Amazon, tremendous partner, tremendous sponsor of today's event. A special thank you goes to Brittany Saunders for recognizing our work and believing in CSI and this partnership. And for those who don't know, I always want to have a fun factoid about Amazon because it's a big, it's a big deal to our state. They're the largest employer in Colorado with 1,000 tech workers downtown and are a big part of our economic engine of success. So thank you, Amazon. So a big reason CSI is growing and we can continue to extend our impact is our amazing policy fellows. Many of you know them and I'll ask them to stand in a moment. But I have an exciting announcement today because that list is growing longer. As CSI looks to educate and inform policymakers, voters, and other key stakeholders like yourself, we knew that healthcare policy was an area that we wanted to lean into. And I'm thrilled to make an announcement for the first time today that this week we will be adding Dr. Reggie Washington to our list of CSI fellows. Please stand, Dr. Washington. For those of you who don't know Dr. Washington, he is a former chief medical officer for Presbyterian St. Luke's Medical Center and the Rocky Mountain Hospital for Children in Denver, Colorado. He currently is on the board of Rocky Mountain Children's Hospital Foundation, Temple Buell Foundation, and the American Heart Association. Tremendous service. He received his medical degree from the University of Colorado School of Medicine and has held numerous um, appointed positions and is currently on the Colorado Option Advisory Board to ensure added transparency and oversight of a, of a critical program impacting so many Coloradans. Um, again, let's welcome Dr. Washington, and if you are a CSI fellow, please stand. Great, thank you so much, Dr. Washington. Now let's talk a little bit about impact and what's next for CSI. Our focus this year, like for many of you in the room, has been on the local municipal races. CSI produced timely and localized research on the most pressing issues that we're gonna hear about a lot today. Housing, homelessness, crime. But we wanted to take it down to the local level and educate voters ahead of these spring elections. So we dug deep in those topics for Denver, Grand Junction, and Colorado Springs. We also issued our, reissued our local election guide ahead of the Denver runoffs. And we're gonna do it again this fall. We're going to inform the elections in Fort Collins, Pueblo, and Aurora. So looking forward to that set of releases coming soon. And if you're a local leader and you didn't hear your city called out and you have an election, come find us because we'd love to do additional localized reports for your community to educate your voters about what matters most. Also want to call out that we felt like we made a difference. Many of the top candidates and those who won, Mike Johnston and Yemi Mobilade, 
they elevated the issues, the topics, the research that CSI focused on, on these key topics of housing, homelessness, and crime. And we look forward to continuing to work with those administrations and educating them on the facts. So what's next? A few resources, a few releases that I want you to be on the lookout for in the coming weeks and months. First, Proposition HH, property taxes, that was a lively debate at the legislative session. CSI feels well positioned to not take a position, but to educate voters on the complexities of the measure and help voters understand what could my property tax reduction look like and how will my Tabor refund be impacted over the long term. We also have two of our amazing fellows have reports coming up. Tamara Ryan is our CORE's Economic Mobility Fellow. She will be releasing a report in the coming weeks about the power and the importance of education and training to help bring people out of poverty. And Lang Sias, our 2023 Mike A. Laprino Free Enterprise Fellow, his next report is also coming out shortly on the cost of litigation and how it impacts Colorado's competitiveness. And last not, but not least, our criminal justice fellows will be doing a deep dive on prosecution filing rates. This keeps coming up. We'll be doing a deep analysis across our 22 judicial districts, and we're trying to understand where is prosecution working well, where could it be improved, and shine a very bright light on the differences across those districts. So more to come there. And the last update I would say is, it's six months away, but get excited. We will have our Free Enterprise Summit again this December. Our keynote speaker will be announced soon, and we hope you'll join us for the unveiling of the 2024 Free Enterprise Report, where we assess the economy um, at large for Colorado. But now, I am excited to introduce a new segment to the Eggs in the Economy program. Dr. Stephen Byers is CSI's senior economist. He will come up and provide the latest insights on Colorado's economy and jobs. Take it away, Stephen, for the scramble. Good morning. Is, is this on? Okay, good. Good morning, my name is Stephen Byers. Uh, we're going to inject some economics into the eggs in the economy. Uh, you might be wondering from this, why do we have crime on here as one of the things I'm gonna talk about? Well, last year, crime cost Coloradoans $30 billion. Not all of it's tangible crime, some of it's intangible. Uh, I think the tangible amount was around $18 billion. Uh, it was like that for the previous two years as well. So even though you haven't been directly uh, affected by crime by having your car stolen or being robbed, whatever, you are being impacted. Um, an example of that is I tried to estimate how much insurance premiums went up just due to uh, automobile theft, and I estimated about $500 million. So the insurance companies are going to get that money back, and they're raising your premiums whether or not your car was stolen or not. All right, let's move on to... GDP. So you might be wondering, well, are we still being impacted by COVID? Uh, back one slide, please. So this green line shows the trend growth that we had prior to COVID. And here's where COVID came in right here. GDP drops off. And we start to uh, meander back towards that long-term trend growth. But we're not there yet. So COVID is still having an impact on GDP. Next slide. 
All right, what's happening with jobs? Well, again, I give you, this is the trend in, in growth uh, prior to COVID, and the blue line is the trend uh, that we're seeing post-COVID. So you can see the job growth has dropped off uh, dramatically. We tried to get some numbers uh, between looking between May and April of each year. Prior to 2020, we were seeing in the range of 2.3 to 2.5% job growth over that period. Since then, we're down at, uh, well, 0.7% job growth. So uh, you might wonder, well, why is this job growth dropping off? Um, Fortunately, we have somebody from the Department of Labor here that I hope to ask the question. We'll see what they think later. <laughs> right, that's why we invited him to answer the question. <laughs> uh, I, anyway, I'm wondering about this is, I think that uh, one thing is, is there's a lot of people who, we have an aging workforce, and so some people are probably dropping out of the labor market there. The other thing is, is uh, I, and I would like to do some studies to prove this, these are just my thoughts, is that there's a, a lot of wealth transfer going on from people passing away right now, and I think the opportunity for younger people to maybe work less or not work at all is, uh, has to do with this a bit. Next slide, please. Where are the jobs uh, coming from and where are the jobs going away from? Everything in blue here, is where we've seen an increase in the share of jobs in the economy, and the red are where we've seen decreases. A whole lot of red there, not much blue. Professional services, uh, professional and business services, saw an increase of 11.2% uh, since January 2020. They added almost 50,000 jobs. At the other end of the spectrum, the legislature's had a big impact on one industry here in Colorado, and that is <coughs> oil and gas extraction. Uh, it has fallen 17% since 2020, and we've lost 4,600 good-paying jobs. Next slide. Labor force participation rate. Well, this is uh, right. This peak right here is right before we went into the Great Recession, 2007-2008. Since then, the labor force participation rate has been falling. Uh, in 2016, it bottomed out, ramped back up, then we hit COVID, it drops down here, and we're just about back where we were in January 2020, but we're still 6% below where we were in 2008. So people are not going back to the office. I suspect there's some, some of the explanation is in how the data is collected and reported here, so we'll look into that some more. Next slide. Ah, migration. Well, one thing I want, this is a, uh, well, you can see that this is uh, an animation. <laughs> what, the, what the animation is showing is that uh, Colorado has declined in terms of net migration 80% over the last two years. We're, in 2015, we were ranked third in net migration. Net migration is arrivals minus departures, and the data is adjusted for deaths and births. So we were really... Uh, an attractive place to migrate to. Uh, since 2000, our population's grown from 4.4 million to 5.9 million. So, 76,000 fewer people have come to Colorado compared to the five-year average up to 2019. The reduction in migration is estimated to have reduced employment by 14,000 jobs. Why do you think people are not coming here as much? Anybody? 
they're finding out it is expensive to live here, so it's not as attractive a place to, to come. Next slide, please. Inflation. Denver ranks ninth out of the 23 metropolitan statistical areas that the Bureau of Labor Statistics tracks. So we're out of 23, what's that? We're in the top half for inflation. Now we try to, to uh, put some flavor on inflation and give you an idea how much it's really costing you. And just over the last two months, February and March, when we got the latest inflation numbers, it was costing the average household $1,100 a month more than it did in January 2020, just to have the same level of consumption. So our assumption here is that everybody's purchasing the same goods and services, but it's costing us $1,100 more. Total increased cost for a household is almost $15,000 since January 2020. Next slide, please. Ah get my pointer out for this one. This is our housing mis home buyer misery index. <laughs> How this is constructed is it's a combination of home prices that we've indexed and we combine that with 30 year mortgage rates. Well, the cost of buying a house, uh, we know that the price is one factor in its affordability, but the other is in the affordability to be able to finance it. So. What we've seen here is we were looking pretty good here in 2012 coming out of the Great Recession. The misery index had dropped. Now it's gone up 112 percent since 2012. And we've got all of Colorado's major counties on here. If you're interested in knowing what's happening in a particular county uh, that is not listed here, you can find one of our reports on housing affordability. And we will have that information there. Housing prices are not fully reflected in the CPI. Um, they use an imputed value, so you really need to look at data from real estate uh, firms like the National Association of Realtors and so forth to find out what's really happening with prices. We know that uh, the high prices is really a function of supply and demand. A lot of people look at the demand side of it. We chose to look at the supply side of it and determine whether or not there's a housing shortage. Just in the Denver metro area, we estimated in 2022 that uh, we had a shortage of north of 100,000 100, units short. Now, Denver, need, we then estimated, well, how many permits do we need to catch up and meet new housing demand by 2028? Denver needs to issue 26,000 to 37,600 permits per year to close the gap by 2028. Currently in Denver, we're on track to issue 21,000, so we're behind. So I don't think you're going to see house prices, the pressure on house prices drop anytime soon. Next slide. Okay, here we are on crime. Anecdotally, I would think with the crime rate going up, what, 28% 20, since 2008, you would think that the prison population would fall or would rise, but we've seen the opposite. Crime's gone up 28%. The prison population has decreased 29%. As you'll see in a report we just released, there are many factors attributing to this. One of them is the legislature. If you don't think the legislature has an impact on crime, read our report and you see that they do. Next slide, please. Here's an example of how the legislature can impact crime. This is motor vehicle theft rates. 
The blue area here is the period following the 2014 passage of, uh, just a moment. 2014 passage of Bill HB 141266. What happened was they made the penalty for motor vehicle theft or all theft, uh, the degree of the penalty was based on the value of the item stolen. So what happened? People started stealing a lot of cheap cars and a lot of times these are the people that can least afford to lose a car. So what happened was, before we got to 2014, the average vehicle, motor vehicle theft rate was 227,000, 227 per 100,000 people. This went up to 800 in just eight years. So what happened was this year, the uh, legislature got a lot of pressure, I think some of it from us and some of the reports that we put out. And they passed SB 23097. This raised the penalties for motor vehicle theft. We're gonna see if that has an impact. We have one good example to look at, and that's Aurora. They passed last July, a year ago. They increased the penalties uh, in their municipal courts against motor vehicle theft. We have seen it dropping off, but now we have a real good... Do you have a question? Oh, that's a rah-rah, okay. <laughs> So I think this is an important slide. Now, what has the legislature done since 2010? They've passed 42 bills that impact sentencing, incarceration, parole, and the length of stay, as well as um, earned credit for time, shorter sentences. If you're, you're a good guy, you get a degree or so forth while you're in prison, then they'll reduce the length of your sentence. 14 bills reduce sentencing, seven increase sentencing, eight increase parole and pro parole and probation, and three increased earned time. Doesn't make sense to me at a time when the crime rate's gone up 29%. So next slide. Biggest unknown, everybody's talking about the re possible recession. Well, I wanted to look at try and do my own projection to say, well, if the recession comes, and this, I'm not saying it will, but if a recession comes, what would happen to employment in the state? Back in this period here that's in this blue circle, this is from 2004 to 2007, the Fed funds rate increased, what, almost six, 5.9%, and we've seen that again now. So what I saw, if you look at this blue line here, is after Fed funds rate went up, the red line right there, there's a lag, but when the Fed funds rate went up, unemployment rate went up uh, with a lag of about two years. If that happens again, we're gonna lose 274,000 jobs. That's about 8.6% of our workforce. So, any questions? If you have any, we're going to wait till the end, and we'll come back, and if people have specific questions, and we can ask uh, our labor people here questions as well. Thank you. We're going to save questions until the very end. Thank you so much, Stephen, for the scramble. Hope we are all feeling uh, more educated about the state of our economy as we shift to our panel conversation. I'm going to ask our panelists to start making their way so that they can get their microphones situated. 
So all of the issues that Dr. Byers just outlined, we really want to contextualize them. We want to make them come to life. And we thought, let's bring some of our state's strongest local mayors and local leaders to the conversation. We can put them literally up on a stage and talk about what, it's mean, what these issues mean for them at the local level. Housing, homelessness, crime, the economics of our state. I am going to introduce our panelist here, and thank you, you're in the right order, that's great, we like that. I'm going to start with um, Mayor Stephanie Pico. Many of you know Mayor Pico, she is the mayor of Centennial, she has been the mayor since 2018 and has been a tremendous leader for the community, fearless leader, outspoken, focused on housing, homelessness, crime, broadband, transportation. She's doing it all and she's a former educator and leader from the Cherry Creek School District. Thank you for being here. She is also joined by the former police chief of Denver, Chief Paul Pazin, who we're so lucky to also have as CSI's public safety fellow. Many of you all know that Chief Pazin served as the Denver police chief um, from 2018 through 2022 and was a part of the um, police force for over 30 years. So really came up through the ranks and led um, our great city for um, a really challenging period, I think, of Denver's history. He did a lot on um, domestic violence prevention, preventing sex trafficking, as well as addressing mental health issues. So thank you so much, Chief Pazin, for being here and for your commitment to our city. And last but not least, Mayor Adam Paul, the mayor of Lakewood. We are thrilled that you are here. Um, mayor Paul was elected for his second term as mayor back in 2019 and has been a fearless champion, again, for housing, homelessness, making life more affordable for Coloradans, as well as continuing economic redevelopment um, west of Colfax. So appreciate your commitment to your city and thank you so much for being here. Everyone can hear me okay. I'm going to start with um, a different question than I prepared them with. So oh. we're going to keep things interesting. <laughs> just, just in one sentence or two, I am curious, given Stephen's presentation, I mean, just give me one reflection on some of the economic data he shared. I'm going to start with you, Chief Pazin, if you don't mind. Well, uh, Dr. Byers, uh, thanks for that report. Uh, I do want to thank both Dr. Byers and the entire research team for helping on our report, really studying uh, crime inflation in Colorado. And uh, this is sobering. I think that we have to go into this, uh, this future with our eyes wide open, recognizing that uh, this beautiful state only maintains this economic vibrancy if we work together in a collaborative way that we identify issues and come up with the solutions. And if, if we don't, uh, we're heading towards that cliff and instead of stepping on the, the gas, we need to be real strategic about how we move forward. Um, I guess, is this working? Uh, elections have consequences. 
Uh, you see what happens when there's a change in you know, some of the philosophies of how things are operated. You see what happens when uh, communities in the state uh, change, legisl you have legislatures involved maybe in local, in local affairs, local politics, um, how communities want to manage themselves. All those things have, um, they have an impact that will continue to just uh, snowball and continue to grow into, into our communities, bring it from a state level into our local communities. So I think the economics missed the fact that Casamania is reopening. <laughs> that, that is going to totally save Colorado. <laughs> talking 500 jobs, cliff divers and all. So, um, no, I mean, I, I think that what we saw proves out to what we're seeing on boots on the ground every day in our communities. And we do live in a great, great place. The metro area is still a great place to be. And it's going to take all of us working together on these. These aren't easy issues, but they affect us every day. And I think at the local level, we're much more equipped to try to handle these. But it also says we need to make sure our communities are engaged and participating and having their voices heard. Great, so let's thank you for that. Um, I wanna start with housing. So I'm gonna ask Mayor Pico and then Mayor Paul. Let's start there. CSI's research, Stephen covered it, you've seen it here. We have some additional on the table. We do a lot of analyses on what is the housing shortage. We calculated for the Denver metro region, we're at a housing shortage between about 66,000 to 136,000 units. I think there were 30 bills with the state legislature focused on housing this year. It was a very busy housing year. I know we have a lot of housing stakeholders in the room, which is excellent. Some large proposals may have failed. Um, there was a large state land use bill. I think there were some other bills like 1255 around um, limiting growth caps that were successful. So some, some won, some failed. But I just want to hear from you, and I'll start with you, Mayor Pico. Just talk to me about how you're addressing housing affordability as, a, as the mayor of Centennial. Well, one of the... Um precursors, I guess, to, to Senate Bill 213, which you were referring to, was that uh, the governor came out and said that it, he was looking for a market-driven approach, a market-driven solution. If we just build more houses, that will help reduce the cost of housing for everyone. And the, one of the things that we said that we couldn't get answered was in Arapahoe County alone, there's already 108,000 housing units that are pre-approved by local governments. Why aren't they being built? If they're already, if that is based on what your numbers were, almost Arapahoe County should be able to solve all of Colorado's housing needs all by itself. Why aren't they getting built? And we know there's a lot of factors to that. You know, everyone's performers are not looking like they did when they started out making these things work. Um, so what it looks like in trying to reduce, you know, the cost of housing and trying to have more housing, you need to be flexible in the local level. I know as our city, we have, I have yet to see us not increased density when it's been asked of us um, in the appropriate locations for our community. We have thousands of units waiting to be built in our community. So we're looking to do that. We're looking for ways in our housing study for our city, what's going to impact our community the best. There's things like land banking that you can do where you can put, uh, give opportunities for home ownership through things like that. And you have um, a really, you know, great platform to try to tell the community, now that people have really woken up and have paid attention to what happened to that 213 bill, we have a great chance to spend this time before the next legislative session continuing to age, engage with our, with our people. 
Great, Mayor Paul. Yeah, so Lakewood's unique, as some of you may know, in that uh, the citizens did pass a growth initiative that capped growth at 1% in, I think, 2019, then had some other ancillary things that were really more punitive to folks that were wanting to densify. Lakewood's 44, uh, 44 square miles, about, I think, 85,000 residential units, and our only greenfield development open area is what we call the Rooney Valley. So think about Bandemir, that's not ours, but on the other side of 470. So we're essentially built out, which means that we densify. And we looked at, you know, 15 years ago, my, my predecessor, Ray Elliott's here, who served on the Lakewood City Council, they really laid the table for what would uh, transit-oriented development look like along the West Line. And what happened was there was this lag of when that was passed to when it was built. And when folks started seeing things come out of the ground, there was a real um, pushback on densification, what this looks like. And so we've been really challenged once this passed to, to limit ourselves at 700 units a year is what the cap would put us at. And uh, it did have some exemptions as in, in blighted areas, but that's also brings its own issues. And one unique piece to this is even if you are a use by right to build, if you want to do over 40 units, you still had to come to city council for special request. And so that was turned down on, on one project, which was surrounded by multifamily near a light rail station, near a community college, twice. So the predictability for our development community, they just said, we're done. Right? And we need that knowing that we're going to continue to add jobs. And so it'll be really interesting to see. We've made some carve outs. We've had a new council that's really tried to look at how do we put some affordability metrics into this to allow some more exemptions. And we'll see what happens. And then, of course, 1255, which is the bill that, that passed that really addresses Lakewood, Golden, and Boulder, um, will we'll, we'll make our growth initiative null and void. And it's a double-edged sword because I was not an uh, advocate for the growth initiative. I think they're terrible. I think ours is terrible for what it's done. But you also have a piece of legislation that was passed by the voters in your community. And so how do you balance that out? So it's going to be another tough, um, I think, conversation in the next six months of how do we move forward and, and what do we do with this piece of legislation. Thank you, Mayor Paul. That's really helpful to hear. And we'll be interested. I think CSI will, we did a significant amount of analysis on those growth caps and we'll be interested to see if it does make a difference with some of our unit supply um, with the active action from the legislature. You know, Peter Lafari is our is CSI's housing fellow, and we did some interesting work on 123, educating local mayors and city council about some of those dollars that are available um, to address housing affordability. I, I'm curious, have, have either of your communities, are, are you going to opt in to the 123 framework? Do you think that provides some helpful opportunities? Start with you, Mayor Pico. Uh, I think. We're looking at, we're doing our housing study right now. We actually have a big study session on it this evening. And I do think that that'll be one of the things that we look at to make sure that what we set up is something that we can use to encourage and, and have 123 be a part of our solution. One of the things about that is, you know, a lot of this housing is, housing is subsidized in some way, shape, or form. And you're either getting affordable housing units or either subsidized by the federal government or locally or in some way, shape, or form. That's one of the ways to make it so affordable, but on the other hand, this is a tax, this was an initiative that was on the ballot that was passed in the state of Colorado, and voters have chosen to use their own money to subsidize 
housing. And so by that, right, that money is, um, was, you know, is there, and people said they're gonna use part of their income tax to go to that, so if that's what it is, then that's, that's an opportunity for us to use money that was voter approved um, to, to help make housing affordable in our community. So I think we will be looking at how we can approach it. Great. Yeah, we're gonna certainly try to opt in. We're in the, our phase of our, our housing study as well. And I think one of the key things I would like to see and something many in this group are, are aware of is construction defects. And that's the other fatigue about density is that we're building nothing that's for sale or very little that's for sale. And if we could figure out how to do that, I, I know even on the, the modular side, a $300,000, 900 square foot modular, not necessarily gets everybody into this market. And so I think that's just one of the biggest pieces that we continue to miss in the metro area in the state of Colorado is the opportunity for home ownership at every level. So I hope we can try to tackle that with these dollars too. Sounds great, thank you for sharing that. We'll, we'll be watching um, you all and every other local jurisdiction in the state. I wanna bring Chief Pazin into the mix. Let's turn to crime. I know that you just issued your first report for CSI two weeks ago, and Stephen just elevated some of our crime stats. But Chief Pazin, share with the audience, you know, what was the bottom line of your report? And I keep hearing about this tale of two cities. What's, what's that about? What were you trying to show between Denver and Colorado Springs? Well, uh, I'll, I'll get to the comparison between Denver and Colorado Springs here in a second, but uh, typically uh, when I was uh, the police chief, I would go into a room like this, talk to community members, and I would ask about auto theft, and I'd say, who in this room has had their car stolen? And you would see arms going up and down, and uh, what I also was surprised by is I would have people that would hold their hand up uh, with multiple fingers twice, right? And so when you're the victim of a crime, and it could be a property crime like uh, auto theft or burglary, that does have uh, an impact. When you're the victim of a person crime, and uh, not only are we number one in, in auto theft, number two in property crime, but we're number four in total crime. Uh, crime is up in Colorado 32%. The rest of the country, it's going down. There's only three states that are doing worse. And so when you're talking to victims, it's real quick to, to understand. But framing that with the economic impact, $30 billion. Every person in this room is impacted by crime because of these direct and indirect costs with regards to insurance and other ways that uh, we are paying for this approach. Now, we can uh, certainly talk about the state legislature and the 42 bills that have tilted the scales of justice. And, and part of the report really talks about the crime triangle, the theory behind uh, for crime to exist, you have to have a motivated offender, a target or a victim, and a time and place where this all intersects. If we reduce the prison population by 29% and our crime goes up, this is now for that 2008 period, goes up 28%, 
What are we thinking? Is our goal of the criminal justice system to reduce prison population or to keep our community safe? It's to keep our community safe. Now, I'm not saying that's the, the singular focus because there's many different aspects. Now, this is where the comparison between Denver and Colorado Springs is applicable. Um, I think it would be real easy as, as folks that uh, reside in this beautiful state to know that there are different attitudes and different approaches in the Denver metro area versus Colorado Springs and how things are prioritized. In Colorado Springs, the police budget is the top line. Uh, their uniformed officers have actually increased during this same study period, 2010 through 2022. In Denver, the uniform presence has actually gone down. Now, what does that mean? Um, right, we all stayed up late watching the game, uh, couldn't go to sleep because we were all fired up. Maybe we were driving a little fast uh, to get to uh, this event. Uh, do we slow down when we see a, a, a police car? Visual presence of a police officer actually reduces crime, it prevents crime, which is what our goal should be in the future, or in, in the first place. We wanna prevent crime from occurring, that way you can reduce the prison population. But if we reduce the prison population, much of it through state bills, uh, you, you saw that spike in 2014. There were two bills in, in 2019, 2020, uh, there was probably the most significant piece of legislation in 2021 that contributed to that skyrocketing uh, auto theft in our state. What I propose is that we can do both, that we can uh, address crime in a fair and just way, hold people ac accountable for their actions, and uh, when you prioritize that, as uh, Colorado Springs has done, even though the entire state is up, they're showing some uh, areas where not only the uniformed uh, officers, but uh, as Dr. Byers alluded, and uh, the work that the other fellows, Mitch and George are going to do, the prosecution rate. The criminal justice system is a system. The laws, the police, the prosecutors, the courts, and uh, prisons and parole systems. And if that system isn't working in concert, if the police increase their efficiency 49% as Denver did, 49% increase in arrest rates, but those cases aren't being prosecuted, where is the problem? And so, uh, so honored to be uh, you know, part of this because I think we're going to really have some clear answers in the, the future reports, some solutions. Thank you so much, Chief Pazin. And we, we know that this is not just a Denver issue. It's not a Colorado Springs issue. Thanks for sharing those facts and figures. I, I do wanna hear from you, Mayor Paul, I'll start with you and then go to Mayor Pico, to hear how are you tackling crime at the local level, and a follow-up question is, are you also seeing an impact from some of the state bills, state legislation that Chief Payson has referenced? Yeah, and in, in Lakewood, which is Jefferson County is our seat, we had kind of a trifecta where um, the county had some financial struggles that forced them to start to look at closing floors of the jail. And then COVID hit, which made it harder to put people in jail. And then the legislature kind of codified some of these. So that perfect storm really made it more challenging for our law enforcement. I'll tell you in, in Lakewood, uh, public safety is our top line, but we spend over 50% of our budget on public safety. So it is a, a key priority for us. 
and so we're, we have a new chief who, who's now come on and we're trying to look at our resources. It's very hard to recruit. Uh, Lakewood has a college degree requirement, which I think has served us really well, but can also limit your pool. So um, we're doing a lot of different things and trying to work with our new sheriff on, on getting those uh, floors or at least a floor back opened to be able to make sure. But whenever you drop that threshold for incarceration, you're gonna see more recidivism and there's not that punishment for what is happening. And it also demoralizes the folks on the street. You know, when they run into somebody who has 78 warrants and they can't take them to jail, right? Or there's a car theft that <laughs> took place and they just have to let them go and they're picking, up, picking them up the next day. So I, I'm glad that the legislature was able to do some work this year. I applaud Aurora as well for what they're doing and, and so we need to continue to look at this. But we have seen an increase. Uh, West Colfax really drives our crime rate. If you think of Sheridan and West Colfax, it is a challenge. And then we have some inter-jurisdictional issues with our, our friends in Denver and that's just the simple reality of it. But uh, the ability to make sure that people who belong in jail go to jail is key. And then I think the substructures of those who don't, we need to make sure we have those programs that are available and, and, and readily available, whether you're dealing with drug and alcohol abuse or kind of some of these low-level crimes where you don't need a place, but there still needs to be some consequences. I think we need to start to really build up those structures, which is more of a new type of approach for a city like Lakewood who depends on its county for a lot of those different services. Yeah, there's a, a you know, there's a, been a number of approaches that have been taken, and, and in, if you go visit the court system, there's a lot of these like alternative type justice uh, places where people get kind of that last chance where they get to do, you know, they get to do drug therapy, they get to do, uh, they get all kinds of uh, support from the environment around them and parole officers and everything else to try to keep them on track so that they can be successful. Uh, and that that's an, a successful program, but it's highly in intensive for uh, resources. There's so many people it takes to get someone, you know, over that finish line. Uh, one of the things that we do in our community is really support law enforcement. Centennial contracts with the Arapahoe County Sheriff's Office, one, and we've continued to be one one of the safest communities in Colorado, um, but a lot of that is because uh, we have a highly accredited uh, law enforcement agency that we can support, uh, and we work, they have actually taken a lot of the initiative to make sure that they're out in the community and seen in a way that is not just what your, your typical newscast might show law enforcement services doing. Um, some of those, those programs are there at our community events, they have their mounted patrol unit, they'll be at our picnics and parks with on horseback, uh, they'll bring therapy ponies for people, you know, for kids to p interact with. And our, our strongest program by far is our school resource officer program. Uh, they have, we have law enforcement in our schools and in the last two years we've brought in five different therapy dogs that have gone into our school districts and into the schools. It is a favorite and it is really impacting how people view law enforcement, especially at that young age where they're very impressionable. And uh, we're all learning this very quickly that our kids are growing up with these lovable dogs in their school and it is really changing what their thought process is on how they interact with law enforcement and what it means in their community. So let's talk more about auto theft. Chief Pazin brought up auto theft. 
We talked a lot about this legislation at advance this session. Um, CSI's fellow Mitch Morrissey, our Owens Early Criminal Justice Fellow, he testified his report focused on the need to, f to felonize, really, all auto theft. But just to be the skeptic here, do you think that's actually going to work? And like, what, what else can we be doing at the regional level to address auto theft? Um, maybe we'll start with you, Chief Pazin. So, uh, and, and I had this conversation with uh, the, the DA in the 4th Judicial District uh, as well. So sometimes just bringing awareness to an issue can uh, help address the issue. And so I think the initial passage of this bill can uh, help address some of the issues. Is this uh, the singular fix? Uh, absolutely not. I think that uh, that trend line that you see that looks like a rocket ship, uh, that's because of multiple bills, the 14-12-66, the 19-143, the 20-10-19, as well as the 21-271. All of those bills have directly impacted this. And uh, our system is a plea-based system. So this defelonization that occurred, if Paul stole John Elway's car, uh, I was looking at a felony four uh, back in 2013. If I stole single mom's car, I was looking at a felony four. The following year that changed where I was looking at a, a, a felony five, and if I stole John Elway's uh, car or a felony six, if I stole single mom's uh, Honda Civic that's worth a couple thousand dollars. Then I'm walking into uh, court and it's a plea-based system. So I'm pleading to an M1, an M2. 271 turned that into a misdemeanor, that the worst penalty that you could get was an M1, and I'm pleading that to uh, an M3, if any uh, punishment at all. So that uh, certainly, in, in the state analysis, there's a, uh, a report that the state of Colorado said this has contributed. So fortunately, I, I think because of some of the work that Mitch and George, CSI and others have talked about, uh, the work uh, that, that's been done in Lakewood and, and Aurora to say, hey, uh, we need to reevaluate this. I think that's going to help I think that might help level it off, but that's not, uh, I don't believe it's going to turn that trend line back to where it needs to be. And we all, not just the folks that are having their cars stolen, we all will, will pay the consequences in hard dollars for that. Great. Thank you. Yeah, we've been advised to, to have everybody go out and buy the club that you put on your steering wheel <laughs> or buy a stick shift because apparently no one can drive them anymore. And so you can, if you have one of those, then you're not, your car is not going to get stolen. I think one of the things we see, though, is that we have these repeat offenders. They, they're, it's not that there's more people out there stealing cars, there are, but it's that the same people are stealing multiple cars over and over again, and there's, they're, they're in the process of some, some type of maybe, you know, work with the, the legal system, but while they're waiting for their day in court, they're out stealing five more cars, and they keep going. And you can, you, you can see this if you look at um, the Arapahoe County jail population, and you just go onto their website and pull up any name that you just randomly throw into the, the mix, you can see what the arrest record was of the person who was finally incarcerated. And so many times, it's failure to appear, failure to appear, failure to appear. They just have warrant after warrant after warrant. They're not, they don't show up to court. They don't, they don't follow through with their pro own prosecution. Why would they? And they've been left to their own, you know, own ability to come in and get that cleared up. So. Uh, it's just a perpetuating problem for that. Mayor Paul. 
Yeah, and, and the thing about, so you have, you have the first victim, right, is the person who lost their car, and then what does that do? If you have means, you can figure it out. If you don't, I mean, you're missing work, you're really struggling to figure out how to continue on with your normal life. But then the secondary victims normally, I mean, they're just not joyriding. So we know that these are used in other crimes, and unfortunately in other violent crimes, in thefts of guns, gun stores. And so, you know, to be able to stop it is, is really key. And I know we have a, a Metro Denver Auto Theft Task Force, which I think is great, and they really work together throughout the region. I think we talked a little bit about seeing that on the retail theft side also. That's another issue that you see. But at the end of the day, our DAs need to make sure that they're willing to charge these for what they are. And, and I'll say in Jefferson County, um, there was, uh, we had a, a probably, I think it was almost 13 or 14 vehicles that had the same DNA of the person, but was never able to, to you know, necessarily prove that that was them in the car. The DA, DA was hesitant to do anything about it, and this person continued to steal cars, but we kept finding that DNA. And so finally getting a breakthrough with the DA to say, hey, we need to take a chance on this and move forward. And so there is a little bit of a disconnect, I think, through, uh, some of the, the DAs that have been elected in the last few years and then the folks on the local levels trying to find that right spot. But they have to be willing to take the cases that we bring to them and then we can go forward with the punishment. I'm hearing a lot about the importance of better prosecution DA data really across the, those judicial districts so that we can better understand what's happening here. So feel that, that report that we're your, working your on. Your report will be very helpful. Good, good. That's what we strive for. Mm -hmm. I want to focus on another topic that was really important for um, all the municipal races this year and we anticipate will be important this fall. As many of you all know, CSI analyzed how much spending on homelessness was happening in the city of Denver and we calculated 1.4 billion um, between 21 and 23. That does include federal stimulus. Huge amount of resources and just asking direct questions about resource allocation and where the money was going and what was the ROI on dollars. Would love to start with you, uh, Mayor Pico, just to talk about how you're tackling um, people experiencing homelessness in Centennial um, to share with the audience today. Sure. So uh, one of, again, our great partnership with the Arapahoe County Sheriff's Office is, is in, integral in that we have um, a, their ability to go out and approach people when they're called and notified in our community that there's someone experiencing homelessness. Uh, but we've also expanded their program to include mental health co-responders. So we have a series of, of, of of educated people on how to work with people with suffering from either a condition, a mental illness, or maybe a drug condition, and they can help approach with the Arapahoe County Sheriff's to go out and, and go to people one-on-one. -on -one. And then on top of that, in Arapahoe County and in the city of Centennial, particularly, we hired a specific homeless coordinator that will be really a boots-on-the-ground type of individual to, they are charged with going out and looking at places where there are homeless people that are either, um, if they start an encampment or if we know that they're in a community and you see that same person kind of walking around and you're not really sure 
not, it's not always easy for the sheriffs to approach somebody like that. A lot of the legislation makes it really difficult for them to do that. But the, to have this homeless coordinator be able to go out and make that first contact with people. Uh, the stories behind you know, homelessness is, is everyone's story is individual. Every, every circumstance is different. That's one of the reasons why it's so challenging to find the right fit and the right solution for somebody who's out there. Um, but I think the piece of that, that you know, the mental health piece is huge. And also the drug piece is huge. And that's one of the things that hasn't really been on the slides or anything today about you know, the increase in drugs in Colorado since, you could say, since passing, uh, allowing marijuana changed, you know, maybe the culture of what Colorado is. Um, but you've got, uh, we didn't, 10 years ago, we had maybe one death from fentanyl in, in Arapahoe County, and now it's pushing 300 a year. So that's a huge change, and that's, and 10 years ago, you never would have thought your kid could go on a social media platform and buy drugs on social media. Like, that was not something we even considered, and that's doing it. And so, and the drugs pushes the crimes, pushes the retail theft, pushes all of that to keep going, and that's really an issue that needs to be addressed. Thank you. Mayor Paul? Yeah, so quite a challenge, I think, for, for all of us, clearly. And again, when you're a city within a county, rather than Denver City and County, you don't have all the resources that others have. And, and it's interesting, I know that number's up there, but I think just Denver would say they spent $245 million on homeless services last year. Our whole general fund budget's $250 million. Right, and we border Denver, and, and if you go to Denver, you probably don't see a lot of things happening, and, and certainly whenever a sweep happens, that comes to, to us. So we're trying to tackle it, we're trying to engage with all of our cities so that we work together on policy that doesn't push issues to other neighbors. And so part of that is um, all the cities have uh, hired homeless navigators. City of Lakewood has a, a co-responder program with 12 police agents, so we have 10 and two sergeants. We have mental health professionals, we have homeless navigators there, and then we have what's called law enforcement assisted diversion, where we can get people right into treatment on the spot. Um, all these things are very, very expensive. And then you get to the camping piece of this, that the courts have said, well, if you don't have anywhere to house or to move people, you're not moving them. We don't have anywhere in all of Jefferson County. I, I say this a lot. We, have, we all pay for a shelter for animals, but we don't have a shelter for human beings. <laughs> and um, that really limits our ability to engage. So long plan, long, long range plans are to build two navigation centers. One's going to be in Arvada. One will be most likely in the city of Lakewood on Colfax and take advantage of a lot of these dollars to do wraparound services to bring some immediate sheltering. Although I'll tell you, I don't know if that's even the solution either, right? And so, um, you know, Kelly Bruff made some tough comments about saying, hey, we want to offer off-ramps to everyone and we'll do everything we can, but at the end of the day, you can't just do this. And I think that's the reality that as policymakers and as the community needs to come to that there's a lot of options, we need to support these options, but the option of just staying on the street and being in these living environments, that's not the option, and we're not gonna allow it. Thank you, Mayor Paul, and everybody. So I've had a chance to ask a lot of questions here. We wanna hear from you all. We have Cree, um, she's in the back in the black dress. She will come to you if you have questions. Do you pay we for have, your SRS? We have one right here, Cree. So what we do do? In the center of the room. It's expensive. 
And please, um, when, please stand up and state your name and um, make it a question so that we can maximize this, this portion. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, Francoise Bergen, City of Aurora, uh, on City Council. Um, thank you all. Um, excellent presentations. Um, appreciate all your comments. On the housing front, um, my question is about balancing the housing uh, demand, but with our resources, for example, water, our infrastructure with roads and so forth. So I hear a lot of times from constituents, you know, why are you, for example, raising my water rates or, or uh, putting us in a stage one drought, which City of Aurora, we're gonna get out of it real, real soon because there's been a lot of rain. Um, but you know, they'll ask me questions like, well, you're increasing development, you're allowing more housing, but yet the, uh, the burden might be put on current residents. So how do you address infrastructure needs? Uh, I think, you know, that is, uh, it is a challenge to balance and it's a, it's a conversation that people have to have. There's, there's, if you have sprawl, right, you have, you're increasing your infrastructure with roads and water pipelines and everything else. If you have redevelopment and urbanization more, you're putting more strain on the existing infrastructure that was never built for that capacity. So I think one of the things that you know I'm proud of, at least in Centennial, is that our, our priority for the city council has been investing in infrastructure and ensuring that, that it can meet the needs of what is going on and we, have, we keep up with it. Uh, and I know it's, it's very inconvenient for citizens when we have to do that. It's very inconvenient to have to work around it, but it's one of the vital roles of what local government is really supposed to do, is make sure that those systems work. And so I think it will be very important to watch, especially going forward with the state, we'd ask them to help with that, making sure that there is water resources. Let's get a better definitive answer. We, A lot of us were at a presentation last week for Denver South where we were told the, it's not water that's the problem, it's water management that's the problem. And we've actually done a very good job in Colorado of reducing our, our use of water uh, in the state, uh, uh, dramatically actually. Um, but we wanna make sure that it's there, then it's sustainable. And those are things that all have to be you know, considered and hopefully we have great, you know, great institutions like CSU and the hydro area out there at CSU Spur campus that can help with all that. I would just say, I mean, and, and you know this, the development process is not easy, right? And, and the fact is there is a lot of impact fees that developers have to go through, whether it's park, school, water, stormwater, um, all these different things that add into that. So it is complicated and knowing that at least the main resource is there and then I think, and they're under attack and they have been misused, but metro districts are important. And that's how you can tell your community that you're not paying for this. It is something that the residents who are moving into this area are paying for because the city doesn't necessarily have those dollars to be able to go in and lay all that groundwork. So it's always a balance and trying to educate the community. But when you look at affordability, it is saying, what can the city do to help with water fees or tap fees? You know, what we're seeing with ADUs is our water providers are making them create their own a separate water and sewer tap for an ADU, which makes it cost prohibitive. So how can we then work with the, the, um, the, those providers to make that more amenable to be able to have these sorts of things in our community? All things that the state legislature doesn't know a whole lot about, I'm just saying. <laughs> They're not the experts in this area. Would have been nice if they'd have asked us. <laughs> Do we have another question? Thank you. Hi, um, my name is Fritz Junker, and my wife and I just 
escaped Portland, Oregon um, to Denver eight months ago. And I say that seriously because it's worse than any of you can imagine. It's not correctly reported. And so I wanted to suggest to all of you and then have a question as well that um, the problem is, has been completely misidentified as far as homelessness is con concerned. The, what even in Portland people are realizing is that this never was about housing affordability, and it has always been about drug addiction and mental illness that leads to those things. So given that the word homelessness itself is potentially a misidentification of the problem, how do we in Colorado, and I now include myself as a proud Coloradan, how do we begin to change the vocabulary and the narrative around what it means to be compassionate in Colorado? You want to take it? Uh, <laughs> wow. I, I'm going to jump on that landmine just to save uh, everybody else. Uh, welcome. Uh, I have a family that, too, escaped from Portland. Uh, and, and what we see, Portland, Seattle, uh, my son graduated from Seattle University, family in San Francisco, is we've, we've talked a lot about the, the legislature. We really do need to ensure that we're clear-eyed and that we appropriately identify what the problem is. And it appears that we are more interested in replicating Portland, Seattle, San Francisco than we are cities that are uh, doing well, Miami, Dallas, Tampa, Fresno, and their approach to many of these complex issues. And there is a nexus between uh, what uh, consequences uh, there are when we reduce the penalties for fentanyl, cocaine, methamphetamine, and heroin, and then we see dramatic increases in overdose deaths as a result of it, we have to be clear-eyed, study that, and not do what feels good, right? Again, there's this narrative that we're, that, that's tilting us towards, oh, well, uh, we feel better that we're reducing prison population. We feel better that we're not holding people accountable for their behavior. But what does the evidence and the research say? And that's what CSI and others are doing to say, wait a minute, we need to do what works, how you can get somebody the help that they need. And some of it is even talking to, to folks with lived experience. Uh, you know, in a big fight to try to address this, we brought, uh, you know, somebody, uh, Ginny Burton, who credits the, the accountability piece of law enforcement of saving her life, saying, hey, I, I said I don't want to do this anymore, but if we just have these acceptance policies, uh, and, and think that it's okay for people to, to live on the street and, and not hold folks accountable or to continue to use hard drugs that are, that are harming folks and not have a leverage piece that encourages folks to get off the street or to get off the, the substance abuse. This is uh, the path that we're headed, and I'm hopeful, uh, but I also see a lot of the similarities uh, fir firsthand. I was just in Seattle moving my, my kid back. We uh, had uh, uh, my wife's cousin that in Portland was like, I love this place, I was raised here, I can't do it uh, anymore. Uh, I was in San Francisco nine months ago, and that is not where we want to be. And, and here in Colorado, we can point to 
places that are doing it well and say, wait a minute, if they're figuring it out, how about we take a look at what works and, and start to replicate the, the, the policies that make uh, a positive impact? I would say welcome as well. Uh, you know, and this isn't one size fits all, I think, and that's where we can get kind of hung up. You have like a step Denver approach, right, where sobriety first. Um, we all know folks who have, have, have issues with addiction. My dad drank himself to death. There's nothing in the world that was going to stop him, right? But I also believe in housing first in some instances, too. Uh, somebody had said you don't, you don't, um, uh, you know, try to, Throw a, you, you throw a lifeline to somebody drowning and get them to the shore first, right? And, and that's kind of, you know, that approach too is let's get them off the street and get them stabilized and hopefully get them to some sort of help. So that's another approach. So I don't, I don't think that, and, and I'm sorry, the, the analogy was you don't teach someone to swim while they're drowning. You get them to the shore and, and start that way. And so we need all of these different approaches. And this is a subject that is the most challenging in my tenure in public policy because there's so many different facets to it. But at least starting with getting people off the street is the key. And I, I just want to add that the compassion part too shouldn't be just left to the person who's experiencing the addiction or the homelessness. It's the family members around them that have tried everything in their power, I have a similar experience to, to Mayor Paul, and your hands are tied as the person who has tried, and you're asking the community, to, isn't there something you can do? And no one can force anybody into any type of program, any type of help, and you need to be compassionate to those families that have, have had their lives ruined also by a single person's addiction. Thank you so much, Mayor Pico. Thank you, Mayor Paul and Chief Pazin. It's a good reminder that it, it takes all of us. It's a community solution. It's not always just through state legislation. Thank you so much for this amazing panel conversation. We appreciate your time. Please, everyone, give them a round of applause. As our wonderful panelists are transitioning off the stage, I would like to introduce the vice chairman of CSI's board to close us out, Dave DeVia, the head of the Rocky Mountain Mechanical Contractors Association. Thank you, Dave. Well, good morning. Um, I appreciate y'all being here. As Kelly said, my name is Dave DeVia. I have the privilege and honor of serving on the board of directors for the Common Sense Institute. And they ran out of names in the hat to pick from. And recently, I just became their vice chairman. And so uh, I want to thank everybody. This morning, our panelists, wonderful, wonderful panelists. Let's give them another round of applause. <clears throat> So um, we did a bunch of acknowledging of our, our uh, fellows and elected officials. I'm going to go a little off script, and I know I'm going to get looks here in just a minute. But all of this work is not possible without a great team at CSI. And we have, hands down, the best employees in this space, in this state. If you work for CSI, I'd invite you to stand up and be acknowledged. Applause. 
You all do incredible work. The compassion and the drive and the energy behind the research, the accuracy, and keeping us out of the fray is uh, very much appreciated from your board of directors, and I know I speak for everybody. So, um, Buzz could not be here this morning. Buzz Coble is our chair, um, and he asks I pass along a couple of things for you. One, if you like what you heard, please visit our website. Please visit our podcasts. Earl Wright, our uh, prior chair, uh, does all of our podcasts, and they're amazing with subject matter experts like you heard this morning diving deep on the reports that we produce. It's a great way to stay, stay informed. That is a great way uh, for us to keep current on the issues. Visit our website. Visit us on social media. Follow us on social media. Participate in the dialogue that's out there in the stratosphere. Uh, engagement is the key, and without you engaging in our process, our work goes unheard. So please take time to do that. Secondly, and most importantly, these research papers, our fellows, and all the effort here is not possible without funding to do that. So if you like what you heard today, we are a 501c3. We can take tax-deductible uh, contributions in order for you to leave today. We're just going to be bodyguards over here that Chief Pazin has, has put up. No, I'm just teasing. Um, we would invite you to become uh, an investor and invest what you feel this work is worth. Uh, it is immeasurable, in my opinion, and there's a lot more to come. And Dr. Washington, I am so excited to have you. Uh, and he may have escaped. Nope, he's there. Dr. I didn't see you sitting there. Um, I'm so excited to have you and to see the work that you're about to embark on in the healthcare space because it is so important for us. So give early, give often, and uh, your morning is to yourselves. So thank you for coming.